Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You know what I think? Hey, barkeep, another one for me and one for my friend here, too. You know what I think? What do you think? They should ship jackknives by train. Why should they do that? Because every time I look at the TV, they're talking about some jackknife tractor trailer that's blocking traffic. Who needs that? They should just, you know, ship them by freight train, and then that just won't happen anymore. It's just common sense. No, that's, that's not what they mean. Who? The news. The jackknives ain't in the truck. Not anymore. They're all over the freaking road. And people are getting out of their cars like, hey, free jackknives. They have no respect for property. No, no. The jackknife thing is the position the driver is in. Like, it's kind of bent at the waist, like somebody's doing a jackknife dive. Friggin' guy drives his truck off a diving board. He deserves whatever happens to him. Our whole way of life is falling apart. Drink up, or we're gonna be late. Uh, remind me? Are you kidding me? Trump for president rally. 4.30. Oh, yeah. Maybe one more quick shot. Remember the time we went sober? I know, nothing he said made any sense. Meanwhile, punch in C5 on the jukebox. That's a show about a, a nose or something like that. And now he says, why listen to the Pope when we can have Ben Carson right here? Colin McEnroe. Well, that's a good point, actually. Um... It's actually not something I say, but it's a good point. Um, all right, a little bit later in the show, we are going to talk about the, the duel, uh, the war of words between Pope Francis and Donald Trump, who a friend of mine, a Republican friend of mine, refer, now refers to as Dotus, <laughs> Donald of the United States. Uh, I think that could really catch on, too. I feel like Dotus just could completely, because it also, it, it sounds like something very unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> Much, it sounds like something worse than, than Doofus. But anyway, um, Anyway, that is to come. And if we have time, also, we might talk about uh, whose funeral you have to go to or don't have to go to, especially if you are president of the United States. But first of all, we, do, we want to talk about something that we've seen that you probably haven't seen uh, just because of the kind of stealth manner in which it was released and also uh, the fact that it's released on an unusual platform. It's not sitting there on your TV set necessarily, nor is it uh, in the movie theaters. But it's something that I think we all agree is kind of remarkable. It's a it's. It's something that we haven't seen exactly anywhere else. Um, it's called Horace and Pete. Uh, the first episode was released on January 30th of this year with no press, no nothing. Uh, it was released uh, to subscribers of uh, Louis C.K.'s mailing list and people who are following his website. Uh, and the, the pilot episode was uh, offered for $5, which Louis C.K. said would allow him to produce other episodes. Uh, and so two other episodes have been released that we've seen anyway so far. Uh, and also just for handfuls of money. I think it was five and then two and then three dollars. <laughs> uh, so Arbitrary. It's, it's like congestion pricing basically. <laughs> so um, – and it's, it's, it's an easy and difficult uh, thing to describe. It's about a bar. 
It's the kind of bar that you kind of wonder why anybody ever goes to, but you also wonder how anybody ever stays away. Uh, the glasses, one feels, are not necessarily clean. The booze is, in fact, watered down. They won't make a mixed drink for you. They'll yell at you if you ask for one. Uh, and the, you can cut the dysfunction with a knife. Uh, the dysfunction is the one thing that isn't watered down at the bar. Uh, it has a remarkable cast. Uh, Louis C.K., obviously, himself, Steve Buscemi. Uh, they are the two owners, Horace and Pete, of the title. But then it's uh, a star-studded uh, group, including Alan Alda, Edie Falco, uh, and a remarkable performance that we are going to be talking about uh, in episode three, uh, featuring Laurie Metcalf. Episode three is just Louis C.K. and Laurie Metcalf, and one perhaps <laughs> <laughs> lamentable line from Alan Alda. So um, let me tell you who's here to talk about this. Uh, Rich Holland is back uh, with us. It's his second visit here on The News. Uh, he's in the process of becoming a uh, regular. He's a design director at CoLab. And then from TheaterWorks, where she uh, is a bon vivant and, uh, and so many other things besides for the wonderful theater company TheaterWorks here in Hartford. That's Tanisha Dugan. And then from uh, the Mark Twain house, where she's not a bon vivant because she doesn't have any time. Uh, but she used to be a bon vivant. Uh, Tracy Wu used to review restaurants like you know. Now and then, not as much. Yeah, you used yeah, to, though. I used to. I yeah. used to have a, such a much more carefree life. Right. Tracy Wu Faftenberg is here with us. So we're going to talk about – we want to talk about this in two different ways. We're going to talk about Horace and Pete in two different ways. There is, as, as Rich was saying as we emailed around about this, um, form and there's content. Um, and the content is just so interesting that it's sort of hard to go through the form first. So maybe we'll just start with content uh, at the beginning here and then talk a little bit about um, how this came into existence and how what kind of pattern it does or does not fit into. But really what we're seeing here is really, really interesting. And so, Tanisha, uh, I think I overheard you as we were all milling in and out of the room here saying that as a, um, a theater person, you right away were sort of grabbed by the vibe of this thing. It doesn't really look like a TV show. It doesn't look like a movie. It looks more like some kind of uh, little play. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a stage set for sure. Um, and I recognized it as soon as I saw the bar, uh, which did remind me of Cheers. And I don't know if that's because my bar references are so uh, stayed To, to me, it, it, looks like, <laughs> it looks like if uh, Van Gogh's Night Cafe were painted instead by Edward Hopper. LAUGHTER uh, or, or, or like a Van Gogh painted Nighthawks by Edward Hopper or something like that. Anyway, continue. But I loved that it, it that was the background for it because the acting is so superb. It is just – it's all about the craft for me. And so for that to be the setting for this story was just sort of perfect. Well, I think also if we can um, talk a little bit about sort of what we're seeing on this show um, and Rich – um, in, in a way, we kind of have to talk about the content mm -hmm. in two different ways because they're really they're sort of the ensemble work that's being done on the show, and it it is. I mean, it will inevitably be compared to Cheers, although it's kind of it's like the anti Cheers, the anti matter of Cheers. Cheer. Yeah, it is like it absolutely makes everybody who was ever on Cheers look like the most highly functional, functioning, and, <laughs> and pleasant people to be around uh, that you could possibly imagine. So there's the ensemble piece, and then there's this Laurie Metcalf one on one with Louis. CK. And maybe we'll just park that one for a second and just talk about what we're seeing in general there. So so what what then does strike you about the, the content of this show when it's an ensemble show? What struck me about it is it's um, it's relative stillness. Uh, and um, I did start with the with the third episode, um, the one with Laurie Metcalf that I can't wait to talk about further. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she was given these tremendously nearly 20 minute 
uh, soliloquy to deliver. And uh, you get to watch it and listen to the content, but also get to applaud her her tenacity at hanging in for that single take, at being able to pick up the pieces when she stumbled and, and weave her way through it. And um, it was, for me, a little bit actually disarming that I was so conscious of the performance uh, because it's so unlike what we're used to seeing on the small screen. Yeah, so the ensemble stuff, well, actually, we're going to play a little clip of it, but... Um you know, the Cheers is the bar where everybody knows your name. Uh, this is the bar where everybody knows your name, but they probably turned it into a profanity, uh, and they don't care anyway what your name is. But uh, this is uh, the owners of the bar. There's sort of a surprise audit by somebody who's a claimant to the throne of the bar, and here's a little bit of how that goes. I've noticed a strange discrepancy in your inventory and sales ledger. You can see here it shows that you buy a case of Johnny Walker Black per month yeah. and that you sell... Two cases mm-hmm. per month. Yeah. Okay? And that mm-hmm. same thing holds true of every liquor that you sell. Can you explain that? Yeah, I can, but uh, but uh, I don't want to. Why is that? Because it's not a good explanation. Do you want me to say it for you? Because I think we both know what yeah, we're talking sure. about. Sure. You're watering down the liquor. Yeah. By 50%. Yeah. That's indefensible. That's why I didn't want to say it. I mean, that's... Why would you do that? Why? Because you make twice the money. What's wrong with this guy? How can you do that to your customers? You know what would happen if we served unwatered whiskey to these rummies? Half of them would have been dead years ago. These aren't customers. They're alcoholics, sir. That is a deception. Oh. That is a terrible deception. Oh, all right. Hey, look, everybody, listen up. Get out of the way. Listen up. Just want to let you know we've been watering down your drinks for years, for a hundred years. So when you get a shot, it's about half booze, half water. Anybody have a problem with that? I know it. (laughs) This place is so awesome. So, you know, there's so many things. There are so many things going on in any one of these episodes. And in this first episode, Tracy, we see so many different things, including why people go to bars, you know. And there's so many reasons why people go to bars. Uh, Sometimes it's because the people that they know and want to be with are there or the people they know and want to torture are there or complete strangers are there with whom they would like to have conversations that will have no lasting impact whatsoever, political arguments or arguments about values. Um, it, It really is. It's just a great uh, kind of Rosetta Stone on what people find in bars. Absolutely. And they even, you know, they touched on but dismissed sort of what we think of as the reason to go to bars. Oh, I'm going to go out with my friends and grab a drink or grab a fancy drink. Well, that gets dismissed right away because that's not allowed in this bar. You know, they go into the deeper, slightly darker reasons why people hang out there. Um, And I really enjoyed that because having bartended for a few years myself up in sort of a podunk bar where my regulars were very similar to these people, maybe not having the depth of conversation as far as political uh, debates and those types of things, but just sort of that underlying darkness and and sort of depressiveness. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it wasn't depressing listening to them. It was only if you step back and really thought about it. All the interactions here, none of them are comfortable. None of them are entirely pleasant, but they're very real. (laughs) Yeah, in in a lot of ways, um, Tanisha, 
as inventive as this seems, it relies on a lot of almost iconic ensemble types, right? Every ensemble has, like, uh, to me, everybody has also their sort of, their their (laughs) paradigm, yeah, the the paradigmatic ensemble. For me, it happens to be Taxi. So you have to have the figure of of Incredible Darkness, that's Louis Mm -hmm. De Palma as Danny DeVito. Um, Here it's Alan Alda Mm -hmm. as this absolutely despicable and horrible, but somehow indispensable uh, figure, this older generation bartender who's been part of the complicated lineage of this show who's uh, fond of slinging the worst possible language around the <laughs> n-word the c-word it's just like all there kind of all the time uh, he's absolutely the louis you have to have this kind of moral center uh, it was uh, judd hirsch in taxi it's louis ck this time then you have to have these kind of lyrical figures who are in touch with alternate realities uh, and and so that was laka gravis and jim ignatowski in taxi here it's really steve buscemi who's actually <laughs> schizophrenic yes. i mean who who actually is somebody with some kind of delusional disorder and who's off his meds. It's it's interesting because I think of uh, Alan Alda's character and and my interpretation of him I think varies from the rest of us here because I actually think he's quite lovable. But I think that's because <laughs> I I am a coarse person in like in life and I come from a coarse family like our the way in which we communicate with each other uh, to the outsiders would seem really hard, but right. it's just the language that we use. It's like our love language is very similar to Alan Alda's. So I thought he was hilarious. I thought he was sort of the truth teller. Yes. Um, I thought he 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 gave us like America as it stands, like no BS, just mm. all of it there uncovered. But, but I see but, a. A difference in coarse language, you know, being the cloak over some love and just coarse language for, for the sake of coarse language. I mean, he he's not exactly a good guy who just happens to tell it like it is. He, he uh, I don't he know. <laughs> gave, he gave up a kid because I don't like kids. I mean, that's that's desperately honest. But at the same time, it's not like it was cloaked in love where he was like, I wanted a better life for you because I couldn't give it to you. It was, I don't like kids. So I think there's a there's a difference there to me. It's weird for of- me, too, because I saw it like there's this acting exercise called Coming and Goings. Mm-hmm. And so when the show first, that first episode first started, I felt like I was watching Comings and Goings, which is kind of like taking a Chekhov script and nothing is really what is actually being said. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably the lens through which I'm watching that character. There's a lot of truth to telling on a lot of destructive behavior as well by this particular character. But anyway, Rich, what were you going to say? I come from um, a slightly different background. Uh, (laughs) I come from a background where folks were kind of inherently mean, um, but cloaked it in in an almost southern bless your heart. And... um, and, but there's this thing from the little glimpses that we've seen about of this Alan Alda character, and I'm waiting to see how it evolves, right, um, where I found him kind of offensive mm. um, and uh, offensive in a manner that actually wasn't constructive. And, um, and he was presenting a, a point of view um, that brought uh, – in the episode that I saw that brought nothing to the story. Mm. And, um, and, and if anything, it – undermine the struggles that the folks were having in the script. So there's a piece of it that to me is, is a little uh, Trump-like um, in this, with this idea that we could say whatever we want and that's okay because that's a testament of, of our being true to ourselves. I think that we have a greater self that we could be true to and he's missing on that opportunity. 
So um, I don't want to say too much more about the first episode because uh, we don't want to do spoilers. Uh, and um, you, see it. You, yeah. you really kind of have to watch this thing. It really is uh, a remarkable thing. Towards the end of this conversation, we'll also talk about sort of the way in which it has been introduced to the world. Although just to go back to your Trump thing for a second, one mm. of the things – this is – first of all, we have to thank producer Jonathan McNichol for uh, guiding us to this uh, particular work and – so one of the things that Jonathan said about this, which I kind of disagree with, is that the current events talk that's going on at the bar, which is what happens in bars. People – you walk into any bar right now uh, and, and people are arguing uh, about the presidential race. I mean that's just sort of axiomatic uh, and, or at least talking about it. And, and I actually thought that was great because that's what people do in bars. He questioned whether that would kind of undercut the, the future value of the series, like whether in 10 years you'd be willing to watch them talking about about Trump. Yeah, what does anybody think? You're I think it's just yeah. not in alignment with the with the aesthetic of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's set up in so many cues to be uh, a piece of, of timeless meaning that you could take the conversations that are being had and put them anywhere in any time and they'd be germane. And uh, the uh, the currency um, disrupts that for me. I don't know. You were shaking I, your yeah. head. I, I, I didn't find that abrupt i didn't find it sort of put, putting a timestamp on it because of the way they were arguing and the two sides mm-hmm. and just some of the content about like this is the way it's always going to be i think right there that was very timely it was just putting it in today's current events um and i, I think you know 10 years from now people are going to probably remember what was going on in 2016 because this is sort of a, a very unique election year um, so it didn't bother me at all. I actually thought it was a good vehicle for commenting on the types of conversations. And, and Tunisia, as a theater girl, you probably are aware of the Apple family plays by Richard Nelson, which are you know nailed really to specific moments. The most recent one, it's called the, that Hopi Changey thing, is on the date, I think, of the 2008 election right. of Barack Obama. Each one of them is pegged to a moment. Yeah. And I don't think that makes them any less valuable. No. Yeah. But I also don't – I also don't see that – sort of opening moment um, of episode one as being such a distinct timestamp that it can't follow um, us because the idea of burning America down is something that has been, (laughs) you know, in existence, I think, for the since the birth of the nation. So um, I I like to know where the time that something comes from. It gives Mm -hmm. me context. Um, I don't necessarily believe any piece is timeless. There is this great character who's at the bar and he's a a little bit of a know-it-all in a way of just sort of, uh, I don't know, trying any aggressively to transcend all categories. And you know this guy from other <laughs> bars that you've been at. And one of his points about Trump is basically the, the country is is deteriorating fast. And his he, I can't quote him exactly or I'll lose my job. But he basically says, so let's just get it over with. You know, that's vote for Trump. We'll just get it over with. Um, well, you know, Rich, I do want to swing over to this third episode. So the third episode doesn't resemble that in any way. This is It's a, a total two-character piece. Um, it, it gives – I don't know how much of it we can give away, but it, it basically is two characters talking about their experience as adulterers and as adulterers within their actual sort of extended families. Um, so just as Francesca de Rimini and Paolo, you know, would say wife sleeping with her husband's brother, there's kind of that kind of thing going on in this conversation. Uh, one person begins with a confession uh, and then solicits uh, some thoughts from, from the other person who's already committed a similar offense kind of against her. And it's this really interesting moral conversation. And I know you were very uh, uh, intrigued by it. I mean, what did, you, what did you take away from it? 
Oh, well, first, I, I think there's a, a piece of context in there that um, that there's a there's a piece of it that was a moral conversation, um, but there was also a piece of it that was about um, trying to resolve uh, trying to resolve your own conflict with someone who's been there and actually hurt you. Mm-hmm. And so, so the dance that was taking place between a, between the two were very interesting. Now, the part that was uh, most notable to me is that um, this woman was sharing with a degree of, of Proustian specificity um, <laughs> what, what this, this act of seduction was like for her. What the Madeline in question was, yeah. And, um, and this thing went on for half an hour. Um, I have yet to, other than, well, I've yet to have someone share that degree of detail uh, to, to elicit... Um, uh, a sense of of approval from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, they cut to the chase for the approval. So there was something in this dance that was going on between the two of them that I couldn't figure out whether um, the pain, <laughs> the visible pain that Louis C.K. was experiencing listening to this story, uh, was part of the dance. Right. Uh, was delivered and intentional. It, there's just so much that was actually layered in uh, in this script that at the end of at the end of it for me, I couldn't get away from um, from the sex layer, the the layer of of gender uh, mm-hmm. that was embedded in this mm-hmm. thing um, about uh, how this woman was struggling uh, with what she wanted mm-hmm. and. Um, and how uh, he could look at her with so much judgment about what she wanted while having had a very similar experience himself. Um, that just to me is a huge bucket to unpack. Do you think that age had something to do with it? Uh, because if you if you look at their two different situations, his happened when he was – 21. A young, virile man who, you know, people think about being mm. in their prime and whatnot. And hers is happening when she is, I'm assuming, probably around 60. Yeah, yeah she says, I think she's, with she a, say she's 57. Fi- yeah, mm-hmm. uh, with, a, with a... Two older kids. Uh, with grown children, marriage. second marriage, and with a much, a older, much man. older man, you know, somebody ho- old enough to be her father. And that in itself, I think plays a little bit on our idea of sexuality because, you know, for oftentimes sexuality is thought to be something you associate in magazines and whatnot with younger folks as opposed to a healthy sex life for, you know, older folks. And I think that that may add a layer to it in addition to the yeah. gender. Absolutely. Something and I you... think it's sad that 57 is older folk because I'm <laughs> rounding the corner on that. <laughs> Sorry, Rich. <laughs> something interesting you said about um, uh, the length of time she took to tell the story to him. And I think that a lot of that had to do with this revenge factor that was going on. And it's interesting because as she tells the story, right, it takes her a long time and she's very explicit as she tells the story. And then she turns it to her ex-husband and says, do you remember that when you did it to me? And he's like, actually, I don't. I don't remember any of the details. And they continue on with this conversation about, you know, well, are you still in, are you still feeling the pain? Uh, Louis C.K. asks uh, Laurie Metcalf that. Are you still feeling the pain? And she's like, I can't even tell you if I'm feeling the pain because the time has gone by so long mm-hmm. that it, I don't even know what my feelings are about it. I just want to know how you moved forward. Yeah. You know, it's a 
fascinating, fascinating uh character study. And you had said something earlier about her sort of stumbling through those lines. And I thought, no, that was choices that she made as an actor. Uh-huh. She's trying to put mm-hmm. together how to best affect her ex and get whatever she's trying to get from him out of him. We're going to dribble a little bit of this out at you right now. Lori Metcalf, and many of you remember her from Roseanne or if you've seen the HBO series Getting On, which is uh, uh, takes place in an assisted uh, living facility. Um, you know Laurie Metcalf. This is an actress who wears stress on her face. Like every moment of stress she's ever had in her life is still sitting right there on her face. And it's all in close up here. Yeah, you could uh, never get this on a stage. I mean that's the thing that's right. so right. wonderful about the medium that they've played with is that she can be this specific mm. and this and it all happens within mm-hmm. her face, and she could never <laughs> make those choices on a stage. All right, you're gonna hear a little bit of her talking to her ex husband, played by Louis C. K. He, he's very, it, he has that kind of man's ego from another time when it wasn't considered just being an when it was a virtue, you know, because he grew up in Michigan. And I just think that it's really interesting to know somebody that has a quarter century head start on you. It's like getting to talk to a time machine. So he would come over and do stuff around the house and I'd make him coffee and he would talk while he worked. And I would listen and laugh. He's really funny. And I'd watch him. I mean, he's 84. And in all those years, he never stopped using his muscles, his bodies. So he comes over and works and um, usually takes his shirt off after a while. And when you look at a man's 84-year-old body and you see the skin turn red and then sweaty with the the work that he's been doing all of his life. And a man who doesn't have to prove anything to anybody in that little house. He would tell me stories about his past in the Navy and growing up on his parents' farm, but he, he didn't really care that it was me that he was telling. He was just being social. He nev- never looked at me much. But I would stare at him because I could because he wasn't looking back. And we're staring at Laurie Metcalf all the way through there. You mm-hmm. cannot take your eyes off her the entire mm-hmm. time she's speaking. We're going to take a break here in just a second. I do want to say just a couple of things from my perspective here. First of all, this whole episode is a remarkable episode. It has so much detail in it that's so true to the way people are. A lot of this is a conversation by a woman who's engaged in a fairly obsessive sexual relationship that she's not supposed to be having. And she's not looking for forgiveness. For forgiveness. She's looking for permission. And she's thinking maybe the one person who could give her permission is the man who transgressed against her in the same – essentially the same way while they were married. And, and one of the things that he's really not able to do is to do that. But it's also so much about how we think about trespass. You know, trespass is, is right there in the Lord's Prayer. People say it every Sunday, you know, and this is about trespass and, and, and how you get punished for trespass. And to me, one of the most interesting things is the way that Louis C.K.'s character conceptualizes mm-hmm. his trespass. I said this in my e- email to you, but I, I – you know, he doesn't describe it as an affair. He doesn't describe it as adultery. He says that – I'll have to paraphrase, but he said, you know, we once we got used to doing each other and not talking about it, mm-hmm. we did it 
all the time or doing each other and not telling anybody about it. That's how he's packaged it up. That's what they were doing. And I think that is for him exactly what they were doing. Uh, but that doesn't change ultimately how it's perceived and processed by the other people around you. It's still the most gigantic trespass that they can imagine. Yeah, you had something? Uh, Oops, I don't yeah, just, I just one quick uh, statement okay. uh, in support of something that, that Tracy was mentioning about age. Um, recently, uh, I got invited to – I got an invitation to a cuddle party in New Haven, mm-hmm. right, and, which I believe is a is gateway to, to, to a whole other thing. Um, and I've, never heard, I've never heard of a cuddle party. You haven't heard of a ah, see? The nose is the bomb. So uh, a cuddle so party of us. is where a bunch of folks get together and, um, and it's a, ostensibly a, a non-sexual time and you cuddle. You know, you just hold each other and you share an intimacy um, that is not necessarily sexual by nature, right? Um, I am going as a voyeur, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, but um, it's all part of this um, of this sort of uh, polyamorous culture uh, that's developing that um, that folks in my generation, by and large, uh, look at with a tremendous amount of of judgment, but. There is a piece of, of breaking down walls uh, that's existing with this new culture, with this new uh, age group that's coming up that I think we could all use to learn a little bit from. Uh, cool. And he also says that he it's you know it's the insurance fire. It's sort of mm-hmm. when you know the writing's on the wall, but you can't say it. Yeah. This is the thing that you do. You really right. burn it down. Yeah, you have to burn it down, yeah. and, and then you get reimbursed. All right, we have to stop there. I mean, really, we could talk for quite a long time. Wolfie appears to know about uh, cuddle parties, and <laughs> that the therapists sometimes even prescribe it for their patients. Oh, I'd cuddle Wolfie. Yeah. At Horace and Pease. So uh, last weekend when uh, Justice Antonin Scalia uh, died, my uh, friend Greg Butler, who's an avid Republican, uh, who messages back and forth with me all week, he messaged me and he said, can this campaign get any weirder? And I wrote back, unfortunately, yes. Uh, and uh, this week proved me right because I mean one of the things you might not have guessed what happened would be that Donald Trump or DOTUS, as we're going to start calling him on this show, <laughs> uh, Donald of the United States, uh, got into a, a flap with Pope Francis. So on the papal uh, plane home from Mexico, Francis told reporters that, quote, building walls instead of bridges is not Christian. This is not the gospel. Uh, his comments were understood. Well, I went further to say I, I just say that this man is not Christian if he said it this way talking about Donald Trump. Put a little bit of wiggle room in there. Trump immediately, of course, responded that this characterization of him was disgraceful. He talked about if and when uh, ISIS attacks the Vatican City, uh, they're going to be sorry. They're, they're going to wish that Donald Trump was president because uh, that never would have happened. Uh, it's kind of complicated tense-wise uh, that they could be attacked by ISIS because he wasn't president or something. Anyway, that was the general point and he, this criticism was then joined by lots of other people. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, who now finds himself routinely in battles with Pope Francis, uh, jumped right in uh, about this. Um, there are some really interesting things to say about this. But I mean the first thing that I, that I would say, Tanisha, is 
I'm trying to remember when something like this ever happened. You know, I mean, popes, they may take an interest in a little bit of the polity uh, of uh, of the United States, but I don't remember them getting <laughs> involved a lot with specific candidates, except maybe to reassure everybody that John F. Kennedy wasn't going to be you know, their, <laughs> their, their, their puppet. I, uh, my memory is probably shorter than yours, it so I don't, <laughs> I don't recall either. Um, but I, I am pleasantly uh, intrigued by the fact that the Pope walked into this. I mean, for Republicans, this whole, you know, the basis of Christianity as sort of how they make decisions uh, in politics and policy uh, is is sort of at the centerpiece of what they do. So I'm, I love that he's sort of like, well, if you're going to say it, <laughs> <laughs> please show up for it for real. Um, so I like, I like that. And, you know, I love the theater of Trump and coming back at anybody and everybody who says boo to him because it wouldn't be a party, a Trump party without him (laughs) being upset at somebody for saying something contrary to him. Definitely wouldn't be a cuddle party. And then saying something so over the top, like, you know, this is what ISIS wants. ISIS, you know, their ultimate goal is to get to Vatican City. And it was when when they do. Oh, that's right. That's right. I think it was was an if and when. Um, (laughs) But but even so. Although, I mean, Rich, you know, one of the things that could be argued is that the the Pope, if he's trying to do any kind of damage to Donald Trump, which is not necessarily clear that he is, but if he is, uh, he needs better political advice because I'm I don't I don't see how this. Does anything? I mean, first of all, Donald Trump is like like one of those 1950s sci-fi blob movie monsters where every <laughs> rocket they fire into it makes it actually a little bit stronger. It's very hard to see some missile you can launch at Trump that just doesn't make him get bigger. Bingo. Uh, but uh, but I think in particular this guy, at least with the Republican base, you know, it, it's it's not really going to hurt Trump at all. No, I think it's going to help Trump. And um, and prior to or simultaneous to uh, this issue with the Pope, um, the Obama took a shot at Trump as well. He was at the uh, at the Asian um, press release mm-hmm. and uh, and reiterated uh, his thoughts on you know that there is no way that that Trump will ever be president, that he believes in the American people and their ability to make better decisions, which again gave Trump fodder to to grow even bigger. Um, Robert Frost has this awesome line in, in one of his one of his pieces that says um, something there is about – that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. Um, and uh, it's phenomenal to take a look at these folks who are studied and smart um, who – uh, instead of realizing uh, what this wall is made of, you know, this this Trump wall is made of contempt, right? And uh, instead of doing what it takes to bring down contempt, which is largely to pay no attention to it so that it, dis, it dismembers itself, uh, they keep feeding it more and more stuff, uh, which just makes that wall stronger instead of weaker. I thought one of the more hilarious levels of response this week – no, hilarious is the wrong word, I guess. But um, uh, Rush Limbaugh uh, complaining about all this says, never mind that the Vatican is surrounded by a wall. and We won't even talk about who built that wall. Joe Scarborough tweeted out a picture of a big sort of Vatican-looking – Vatican City-looking wall and said, Pope Francis, tear down that wall. Well, if you've ever been to the Vatican, the Vatican is the least walled-in principality yeah. in mm-hmm. the world. It is the most accessible sovereign state. You just walk in. You can walk out. You can walk in. You can walk out all day long. Anybody who's suggesting that there's a wall keeping anybody out of the Vatican City has either never been there or is stupid or is Joe Scarborough 
But then I repeat, I repeat myself. Being both, right? Yeah. Right. Untraveled yeah. and stupid. But exactly. It's like the Great Wall of China with a bunch of tourists walking walking <laughs> on top of it. It's just it's a ridiculous argument. I mean, the the thing that's interesting to me about Pope Francis is the way that I tied all this together. Let me just quickly say is that on. Yesterday, uh, our show, we recorded it in the morning. It went on tape. I, I can never eat lunch, but I was out by myself, and I could actually eat lunch. And I um, went into the uh, to Billings Forge to, to the firebox, and I went and ate at the bar. So that's my uh, Horace and Pete part of this. <laughs> <laughs> and because I wanted to have something to read because I was by myself, and I actually these days for the last six months or so, I actually have a Bible in my car all the time. So I brought my Bible in. And then I kind of thumped it quickly down to the bar so they couldn't see the cover. And I, didn't want to be, I didn't want to be the guy sitting there at the bar. The bar reading the Bible. Bible you know? I didn't want to be that character on Horse and Pete. But, I mean, whenever I do do that and spend a little bit of time reading it, I'm, I'm once again reminded of how right Pope Francis really is about this stuff. That everything, everything, everything is about forgive your enemies, love the people who are the most difficult people to love. You know, I mean, there's a little bit of flipping over tables in the temple, but most of it is all about, you know, about inclusion and tolerance. Which testament. I mean, and that's the the terrible (laughs) thing about the pun is that I think the Pope really is hoping that this sort of group of Americans have their real come to Jesus moment Mm -hmm. because there is like – it is the opposite of love all the time. Mm. And when until we get there, it's sort of – it's a farce. Mm. But there, there is also a part though, Tanisha, if we're going to be biblical about this, um, that, uh, that the Bible actually does make some recommendations on, on how to handle a Trump. You know? And it suggests that uh, you meet mm-hmm. someone that's as – and I don't think that the, the Bible uses particularly obnoxious as an example, <laughs> but – Let's paraphrase. <laughs> because if that's you, what one does with the Bible. Yeah. If you meet someone particularly obnoxious, you go and you talk to them. And if that doesn't work, you bring a couple of people with you to talk to them. If that doesn't work, you bring a couple more people to talk to them. And if that doesn't work, everybody turns their back on them. You know, we are long past the point of everybody turns their back on them, but we're still bringing people to talk to the guy. It just doesn't make sense. Um, all right. Well, let's do, do a quick gear shift here, and, and uh, we just have a few minutes to talk about this. But uh, but it kind of it kind of goes with it somehow. So uh, obviously, uh, Justice Scalia is in the process of being laid to rest. I think today was uh, his day in Washington. But uh, but President Obama elected not to go to the funeral and uh, attracted quite a bit of criticism about that. So uh, Tracy Wu Fasterberg. Um, what are the rules? I mean, whose funeral? If you're, the, I mean, whose funerals, funerals in general, do we have to go to? Uh, and if we're the president, how does that change? Well, I, I've already shared this with you all. I'm a fundraiser. I go to a good number of funerals, so uh, for me, the the rules may be a little different. Um, but I think that in this particular case, whatever Obama did was going to be fodder for criticism. If he had, if he had decided to go, it would be well. How dare he steal the stage? you know, from this great man as we lay him to rest. If he doesn't go, then, you know, we see what's happening. How dare he disrespect him in that way? I don't think there was a win-win situation here. I think I'd like to believe that he's doing what's best. It sounds like those close to the Scalia family aren't surprised, aren't offended, um, that, you know, if he had not gone to pay his respects at all, you know, today, then that would be very different. Um, But I think in general, I, who was it that tweeted out? My mother said, you know, if you have a question about whether or not to go to a funeral, you go. I agree with that on, on a, my own personal level. But I think in this situation, it's a no-win situation for Obama. Mm. I, haven't done a lot of, I haven't done a lot of death, so if you guys could, could help me out here. Um, what is the protocol? If you go to the wake, do you have to go to the funeral? No. no. All right. 
they're done. The, the, the funeral is a little more formal. Mm. Um, you know, more people are going to go to the wake than the funeral, and uh, fewer people are going to go to, say, the burial site. Right. So, so it's th- sort of that hierarchy. Okay. So the way the Obamas worked it out was today that they paid their respects uh, when uh, Scalia's body was uh, in repose in the Great Hall of the Supreme Court. But Vice President Joe Biden will attend the funeral in the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception on Saturday. Um, so uh, Rich says it's a good enough compromise. Will you go with that? I, for the president, yes, I do. I think sort of like a fundraiser coming to someone's wake, it's to say thank you, to say – Pay your uh, respects to yeah, the family. I, I, we were in a place together for a time and I should be present. Right. But as a general note, I'm sort of a – I'm, I'm quite conservative in choosing wakes and funerals mm. to attend. <laughs> um, as a tactician, I would just say he, sh- he should go to the funeral. He should have gone to the. F- he should be planning to go to the funeral simply b- as a way of saying to everybody, "I'm I'm in this for conciliation. I'm in this for bipartisanship. I'm in this. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I really feel as though we are all, we're all in this together. And so here I am among you with you." Uh, giving the the fullest respect I can to this man, but let's get on with this and you know get a replacement nominated and all that kind of stuff. I mean, not that it'll work, but uh, it's what you would try anyway as a tactician. But don't you think that it would detract from the funeral itself? I think it was something in the Times that said you know there'd be cutaways to his reactions, uh, you know, to the eulogies and things and, like that. Which yeah, I, and when he was and Nancy Biden Mandela's has the relationship, thing. you know, and and that's right. He did get in trouble at Mandela's funeral. He did get in the trouble selfie, at Mandela. Yeah. The selfie with the Danish Prime Minister. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back with some recommendations for you. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Jonathan McNichol, and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Betsy Kaplan. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Benjamin Esty and Alexandra Ingber. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alan Alda. For show pages, articles, and a joke in which here and now walk into a bar and the bartender says, we don't get a lot of ampersands in here, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, remembering Harper Lee and other news from the weekend. And now... Back to the nose. And the ampersand says, well, at these prices, you're not going to get many more. Uh, I was trying to figure out how the joke goes. Uh, all right. So it's time for some recommendations uh, from our nose panel. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, are you prepared to go first? I am prepared to go first. Uh, the Mark Twain House and Museum is presenting a sort of electric opera of um, Mark Twain's later work, Mysterious 44, um, and that takes place next Saturday and Sunday. It's actually very cool. This is the U.S. premiere. It was done over in London. You can look up YouTube of Mysterious 44 Opera. It's not your mother's opera in any way, shape, or form. It's very cool. It's got some multimedia things going on. Hartford Opera Theater is amazing, so I'm excited for it. Um, And my second endorsement is I recently have joined a group of uh, mothers, essentially, across the country um, in in sort of... uh, encouraging random acts of kindness um, among our peers, our friends, our family. And since you all are sort of captive right now, I will encourage all of you to engage in random acts of kindness of whatever you like over the next week. Cool. Uh, awesome. I may be able to, uh, to piggyback on that, but uh, let's go on to Tanisha. Sure. I guess this is in line with um, cuddle parties. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I can't wait. I'm there. On uh, March 10th, TheaterWorks opens Sex with Strangers mm. by Laura Eason. Um, so come and bring your cuddle buddies and check that out. <laughs> and along those lines, I always say it's TheaterWorks 30th uh, anniversary this year, and we're hosting a party to support and fundraise and celebrate called Dirty 30, which I is love that. kind of a cuddle party. Uh, <laughs> we take Sex with Strangers and do a Sleep No More treatment of it, so it is a sort of fully immersive dance party theater thing. That's so we awesome. invite you to come April 2nd to oh. that thing. All right. So there. for be- people who don't know Sleep No More, the thing she's referring to is both Wolfie and I have both done this where, in fact, you experience Macbeth while running around from chamber to chamber in this very strange building. I forget building you can say that Chelsea here. You can say Macbeth. Scottish play. Well, anyway, it's, a, it's a, an immersive version of, of experiencing that play. Although, how much it really has to do with that particular play, I'm a little <laughs> unclear. But anyway, people, that's, that's what she's talking about. And just, just for 30, 40 seconds, give us a nutshell of Sex with Strangers. Sex with Strangers, it follows a 42-year-old woman and a 28-year-old guy, both at real career uh, crossroads, and their love affair, both with their careers and them and each other. Hmm. So it sounds very much like Lori and Louise. Uh, exactly. Uh, exactly. Pretty much the same age gap. All right. Go ahead. What have you got, Rich? What I've got for you today is a CD. Um, well, it's, an e- it's a six-song CD. Uh, by an artist named uh, Chris with a K, Delmhurst. So you're going to have to Google that. It's called Horses Swimming. (laughs) And uh, six tunes, um, particularly germane to the conversation we're having today, particularly the first cut that has the refrain of, it's a big, big world and I'm going to... Sorry, wall. It's a big, big wall and I'm going to tear it down. Ah. I think the first person ever to sing his recommendation or endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) Say the name again, Chris. Chris. K-R-I-S, Delmhurst. Chris Delmhurst, all right. D-E-L-M-H-O-R-S-T. Well, you've been uh, very generous to me to give me a little bit of time. So I will piggyback, sort of, on Tracy with Asperger's thing. So I was sitting – first of all, I've done this before, I think. But one of my recommendations is if you're by yourself in particular, eat at the bar. Uh, like have lunch at the bar, have dinner at the bar uh, in, in a restaurant. It's also very interesting. Uh, you get a different kind of attention from the waiter, uh, from the bartender, whoever's serving you. Uh, and the people around you are doing all kinds of different things. And if you're kind of a, an unrepentant eavesdropper like me, you hear all kinds of interesting things. And I did. While I was sitting there yesterday at the bar, there was this unbelievably kind conversation that was going on uh, next to me at the firebox where a chef would come out of the kitchen to visit, I think, the mother of um, uh, of a young Puerto Rican man who had maybe been uh, an, an under chef for a while there and had gone someplace else. You see, I really was eavesdropping. But he was being so <laughs> incredibly kind. And I was sitting there with my Bible and I was sort of thinking, you know, if you want epiphanies, you know, if you really want, just open your ears and you will hear people doing really wonderful things for each other. And it just kind of exactly fits in with I mean, the level of kindness that this young man was showing towards this uh, older woman was was so lovely and heartwarming. And I thought, well, you know, so, I mean, bars, one reason we go to bars is because actually some nice things happen at bars. Some completely regrettable things happen at bars. <laughs> seem like they're going to be nice things at first. Uh, but I'm talking about something different. Uh, yes, Wolfie was exactly that guy. Uh, and so um, my other recommendation is, so both Wolfie and I were uh, at uh, the Hartford Symphony this past weekend. And Irene has said in the past, now, particularly now that the labor strife has ended for now, you really got to support the Hartford Symphony. I mean, Carolyn Kwan is an amazing talent. We're really lucky we have her here. Uh, she's wanted uh, all over the world. I mean, not by law enforcement, but by uh, other <laughs> she's orchestras. She's in high demand. Yeah, she's in high demand. 
and uh, she put together a really interesting um, menu of stuff uh, for Valentine's Day. Really kind of interestingly chosen, uh, the, the Prokofiev section uh, from uh, that was sort of the balcony scene section from Romeo and Juliet with actual dancers dancing it out reminded me of all the f- emotional fragility uh, of that couple I had just seen uh, in previews, Romeo and Juliet at Hartford Stage. Mm-hmm. But I want to particularly recommend – uh, Tchaikovsky's Francesca de Rimini because it fits perfectly with Louis C.K. Uh, and <laughs> with Laurie Metcalf. So if you know after you watch that episode of Horace and Pete, which I think we're all recommending to you, then listen to Tchaikovsky's uh, Francesca de Rimini. It's of course based on that myth that, or story that appears in Dante's Inferno. It is exactly the story of infidelity and passion, irreconcilable and unslakeable passion uh, between a woman and the brother of her husband, uh, and it. It has kind of everything in it. Uh, it has it has it has all of the things in it that are going to make it so hard for Laurie Metcalf's character to stop doing what she's doing until she meets the ultimate. Uh, you know the way these things tend to work out. Anyway, so uh, listen to Francesca de Rimini. Just get a really good recording of it and listen to it and support uh, the Hartford Symphony. It's just uh, now that the institution has kind of stabilized itself, it really deserves our attention. And you really, you know, I mean, when you just go and listen to really good musicians play stuff live. It's really great. You walk out of there thinking, oh, I'm so glad I did that. So, uh, so do all those things. Uh, and I want to thank, once again, Rich Holland uh, and Tanisha Dugan and Tracy Fastenberg for joining us here today. We really do recommend go on the Louis C.K. website. We'll try to um, like maybe post some instructions for how to do this because maybe some of you haven't done this kind of thing before. But go on that website and really sample this thing. It's really – I think we all feel as though we've, we saw something that's radically different from what we see pretty much everywhere else. So, um, and particularly if you have a hard time getting out to the theater, well, you have the theater come to you a little bit uh, with this. So, a uh, great show. We'll be back on Monday. We know not about what. We'll probably be talking about the death of Harper Lee as well as other things that happened over the weekend. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McNichol, and Kyone Wolf. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this. Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, Hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. If the Vatican builds a wall around itself, who's going to pay for it? Atheists?